Hello, everyone. Um, I'm very excited for this conversation. I think this will be a lot of fun. Um, the entire world is buzzing about generative AI these days. Um, it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. And so it is a real privilege and a pleasure to have three true experts from the world of generative AI on stage with me here today, um, representing uh, three of the buzziest and most exciting generative AI startups that are really helping to create and define um, these categories in real time. Um, so I think it'll be a great conversation. Um, I'm Rob Taves. I'm a partner at Radical Ventures. We're a VC firm that's focused entirely on AI. Um, I also write a regular column for Forbes about the big picture of artificial intelligence. Um, let me quickly introduce our three panelists and then we can, we can dive in. Um, so Chris Valenzuela, CEO, co-founder of Runway, uh, which is a very exciting startup that's building a suite of AI-powered tooling for creatives, um, including a lot of tools around video editing and photo editing um, based in New York City. I think something that I think is, is super exciting uh, that maybe we'll get into more is Runway just hosted the first ever AI film festival in New York City last week, uh, which heralds a, a new age in the world of, of filmmaking. Um, next, we have Phil Blunsom, chief scientist of Cohere. Um, Cohere is a company building cutting-edge large language models and making them available via API um, across industries, across use cases, with the vision of democratizing access to the world's leading foundation models, language models, to be used uh, by 100% of the, of the organizations around the world. Um, Phil is also a professor of computer science at Oxford. And before joining Cohere, he was at DeepMind for seven years, uh, where he was a senior leader there, including founding and leading DeepMind's natural language research efforts. Um, so he's, uh, he's a longtime veteran of the world of AI and generative AI, and we're, we're thrilled to have him here. And then last week, we have Dave, uh, CEO and co-founder of Jasper, another super exciting generative AI startup. Um, Jasper got founded in 2021, um, and by 2022, the company did $75 million in revenue, according to TechCrunch, uh, which makes it one of the fastest growing software companies in history, uh, which is very impressive. Uh, in a nutshell, Jasper has built um, the world's leading AI-powered um, copywriting platform. So Jasper's platform can automatically generate all sorts of different content for users, including uh, social media posts, blog posts, website copy, advertising copy, really, really neat and powerful tool. Um, so with that said, I, there, I, there are plenty of big picture questions I'm excited to ask you guys about the world of AI, but maybe to start speaking about your, your respective specific companies, um, I would love to just hear a little bit about what each of the three of you are working on, what, what the top priorities are for your, for your organizations, uh, and what you're most excited about in the, in the year to come. And Chris, we can start with you. Sure. Um, we do a lot of different things on Runway, um, and we do it in a very integral, like, connected way. And so for us, a lot of the things that are, we're working on are really making sure that we can keep pushing the boundaries of research in the space, um, specifically for our customers, which tend to be filmmakers and artists and designers and creatives at large. And so pushing the boundaries of research, but most importantly, making sure that that comes with a good product next to it. Um, and so we started the company like four years ago uh, before the journey of AI wave even begun. And, and, and so we built really that muscle of iterating a lot in both the research and the product side. And a lot of what we're doing now is just keeping, keep, keep doing that at a, at a faster pace. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Phil, curious to hear more about Cohere. 
Yeah, so um, I mean, my day-to-day -day is mostly focused on uh, uh, building and training the big generative models. So we're really focused on just being in this uh, sort of flywheel of constantly making the models better every week. Uh, and one of our big, big focus at the moment is making these, these models sort of enterprise-ready, enterprise-grade, because um, uh, we've seen a lot of the, the promise of these models, but overcoming some of the sort of rough edges and problems with these models. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting, very fast-moving sort of new developments and uh, uh, new features sort of uh, by the week. Yeah. Dave? Yeah, for us, I mean, we're really trying to take this exciting, complex technology, simplify it, and build great UI, UX on top of it for businesses to go and create great content for their users to, to read and consume. And so uh, this year, a big focus is just really building out the platform more for like mid-market enterprises, um, building tooling to allow people to collaborate and just bring your entire team on there. Helping to train these models to, you know, know the tone of voice of the company, to be able to retrieve facts, you know, accurately about the company and work those into the content. Uh, and then also, you know, right now we're kind of primarily a web app that you go and you log in, you generate your content, copy and paste it back out. Uh, I really think that the ideal workflow for users is that they're just Jasper's already where you already are. And so we're trying to take Jasper kind of outside of the app into all the other tooling that you're already using. Uh, and I really think that'll probably be like the primary way people use Jasper in the future. And then you'll go into the app for primary interfaces. And so, um, yeah, that's what we're doing this year. That's great. That's really exciting. So maybe Chris, first big picture question. I'm here. I'm curious to hear all, all three of your perspectives on. Um, there is obviously so much excitement and buzz around the world of generative AI. Um, what is one thing that you think is really important uh, or something that you, that you believe strongly about generative AI that you think most people still don't understand or don't, don't get right? I think there's um, this impression that there was a breakthrough moment a couple of months ago and things have really started to accelerate. The truth is that the research has been growing for like years and decades. And, and what we've seen more recently has been a more mainstream adoption of, of models and techniques and systems that have taken a lot of years to build. And with that in mind, I think one of the key things to keep in mind, and we, we do this a lot in Runway as, as we think about product and, and research, is that it's still very early. Like it's, it's still a lot of, there's a lot of things that need to be built that haven't yet been built. I think um, we're transitioning from like pure research to engineering problems now. And it's about scaling and it's about optimizing the models and making them robust and controllable and more flexible. And so I think a good mental model to have is not to obsess upon, about one specific model or one specific moment in time and focus more about the kind of like trajectory of where, where we are, where we're going to be in like the next couple of, of years. Um, I think that helps better understand if you're really focused on building products and focusing on, on making sure that you're, you keep on understanding the space and not really uh, under uh, optimizing for the wrong moment and the wrong thing. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And it is uh, kind of collectively people look back at this moment three or six months ago. I mean, ChatGPT is obviously one, one major watershed that's caught a lot of people's attention. But it's, it's worth noting that like all of the folks at OpenAI were shocked and surprised that ChatGPT went so viral the way that it did because the model that underlay that product had been available, freely available to the public via their playground for over a year. 
Um, to your point that like these models have have existed, they've they've kind of been cumulatively building on one another. Um, and so it is, it's an it's it's an interesting moment that I think a lot of people didn't necessarily see coming, but now being able to adapt to it nimbly has, is, is so important. Um, Phil, I'm curious to hear your, your your take that you think most people don't understand about. Well, it. I, I thought that was a great answer, and having yeah. having worked on um, uh, language modeling for I guess 20 years now, uh, for most of that time, absolutely no one was interested in it, <laughs> and then suddenly uh, you open the sort of newspaper and you have language models on the front page of of the newspaper. Um, I'm not sure I give one concise answer, but there's a, a few answers. Uh, one is um, uh, production doesn't equal comprehension, which is uh, what we see with these models is they learn to produce convincing uh, images or language uh, before they learn to understand them, uh, which is a reverse of what human humans do. Children learn to understand before, before they learn to talk. Uh, so that's a big one, that, that these things happen backwards, so that's going to be confusing to people. They, they see convincing uh, outputs and think they must be understanding. But, for instance, in, in image processing, we've made very little progress in terms of actual image understanding, being able to segment and, and things, uh, but we can generate beautiful images. Uh, the other one I'd, I'd say is scale. I think people misunderstand scale a lot, and they focus a lot on parameters. Uh, that's the, the wrong way to, to look at these models. Uh, and, and definitely in the last few months we've seen, if anything, or maybe the last six months, uh, we're going backwards in scale. Models getting smaller um, in terms of number of parameters, but in other dimensions they're, they're getting bigger in terms of the amount of data we're training them on and things like this. So things like scale are a multi-dimensional um, uh, aspect of these models. So there's a lot more going on just, than just parameters. Yeah, that's such an important point. And you, you and your team at DeepMind, the, the work that you guys did around Chinchilla last year, I think was such a such an important and groundbreaking piece of research in demonstrating that like it really is not what matters so much more than the number of parameters, at least currently, is the size of the training data set. And I think that's that's a nuance that a lot of people miss often. Um, Dave, curious here, your your uh, your contrarian take on generative AI. Yeah, I think the question that I probably get asked the most is just how did Jasper do it? And I think underlying that question is people thinking, well, you know, you used another company's API to start, and everybody had this thing. So, like, what's really there? Like, is there even anything else to do, like, that adds value to the, to the customer? And, and I think what I keep coming back to is that, as a lot of people missing, is that, like, the businesses always start with the customer and a need. And you work backwards from there. And that's what we've always really tried to do is that, you know, I'm a marketer by trade. I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I wasn't building large language models like Phil for 20 years. I was writing content and blog posts and ads and all of that. And so I, like, was, was my own customer. And, and then, you know, I looked up and I see, you know, two years ago, hey, this is actually, like, really good uh, at writing the content I'm already writing. And I was able to kind of connect those two but it's always started with the customer and like worked out. And what I see a lot of people now doing is like starting at the technology and then just kind of trying to like ram it into like certain verticals or spaces or whatever, which is like kind of what we did with Web3. And it was like, we never really knew like what it did, but it, it was really cool and it sounded like it should work, but it was never really like solving really tangible problems. Uh, and so I just think people would be more successful when they build if they perhaps cared less about the technology itself and just more we're talking to customers and really getting the insights and then turning around and applying the proper technology at the right time in the right place for those customers. And so businesses have always been built that way. Uh, technology is cool, but it'll always be about solving customer problems. And I think people should focus more there.
Yeah, that's such a great point. I think all three of these companies do a great job of this, but someone put it to me very simply recently, which I thought was, was really insightful, which was that the, the secret that no one wants to admit about how to build a great AI company is to build a great company. And all, all the same things that you have to do still apply in terms of staying close to the customers you're saying and, and you know, identifying a need that people are really willing to pay for. Um, so I think that's a great point and certainly something Jasper has done a great job of. Um, okay, this next question, I want to start with Phil. I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on it. Um, there have, there's been a lot of discussion and debate uh, around and um, kind of different pontification around uh, in this generative AI boom, where will the value actually accrue? Where is, and especially if a lot of the folks in the audience are investors, um, where's the best place to deploy capital and, and which types of companies are going to end up being really durable and valuable and, and um, important over the long run? And I think an important subset of that question is the question of whether at the end of the day, the models themselves, the foundational models that organizations like Cohere or OpenAI or other companies are building, whether those models will, be, will become commodities over time or whether they will represent a durable source of defensibility. Um, I'm curious to hear your take, Phil. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting question. Um, one, I think there's a lot of value to go around, so it won't all be in one place. Um, but but uh, definitely in, in from the, the, the view from Cohere, we think there's a lot of value in, in building the models. Um, we don't think they'll become commodities. Uh, and uh, the model itself, and that's partly because that's not necessarily the, the, the thing that is this hard, essentially. It's, it's the thing you see. But um, uh, we, we still think of big language models, this big sort of one big artifact, the language model that, that's being trained. Um, but that's not really what's happening now. We, it's better to look at it as a whole sort of stack of, of models uh, and different training procedures. So we have big base language models that take huge amounts of computation to, to train, huge amounts of data. That data's cheap. We scrape it from the web. It's maybe a trillion tokens. Uh, but on top of that, we have supervised reinforcement learned uh, models. Uh, they're much more computational efficient. We can train our model in a day, so we train it every week uh, on new data. That data is much smaller, it's much more expensive. We have to actually go to human annotators to get that data. Um, on top of that, that's where your conversational models come in, chat GPT. Um, and then on top of those, we're seeing uh, the integration with things like retrieval, both in terms of web search, enterprise search. Um, and there's a whole other layer on there that hasn't really sort of made it into the public imagination yet, but what we think of as the action layer, and that's where these models actually act in the world. Um, but that's a big, complicated stack. Uh, it's not something that's easy to reproduce. Uh, we're training these models constantly. It's not like one shot, you train a model, you throw it out there, and everyone can use it forever. Um, and we've seen that with the open source models. They sort of they go stale quickly. Um, so I think that the value there is really in the, the bringing together not just the computation, but the team, um, the capital, obviously, to, to fund it, the, the know-how to keep it going sort of week after week uh, uh, to keep training. Um, and there's a sort of, a, there's, I think, a pretty good analogy for these big models, which is to look back a couple of decades to search. Um, and search, of course, is all about having a web index, which you can, there's a pretty good analogy there for, for big language models. And we haven't seen those commoditize. We've, we've actually seen the opposite. We've ended up with very few. In, in the Western world, there are very few uh, uh, um, state-of-the-art web indices. Um, so it, there's a similar thing there. And it's easy to describe to an engineer how to build a web index, but you don't see everyone going and doing it. It requires a lot of capital, a lot of computation, a lot of know-how, and you've got to keep doing it. Otherwise, it goes stale. Yeah, I think that's a really great analogy. It, at this point, 
it, people know how to build a web index, uh, but it's not rational for hundreds of different companies to build their own indexes of the web and provide search engines. Um, Dave, I'm curious to hear your, your take on this question, your, your perspectives. Will, will the model layer commoditize over time? Well, since I'm with a bunch of investors, I have to say the application layer is where all the value <laughs> accrues. And, uh, no, I, you know, I think, I think it all commoditizes over time. You know, I don't know if anything, if, you know, we kind of just plant our flag right now and stop innovating would, would last a real long time. I agree with kind of what Phil said. It's that like it's the continuation. It's the internal knowledge and ability to build something great and then continually iterate on that and continually uh, advancing the ball downfield there is where there's a lot of value. Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, like, all of this tech, the applications, uh, the models, um, again, the hardware seems to be like, you know, really, really hard. I was with Andrew, the CEO of Cerebris, you know, a couple weeks ago, and he was just like, felt like he'd been slogging it out for a decade. And I feel like he's probably the safest, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's like, it's, you know, going back to maybe my, my original thought, like the customer relationship is where there's a ton of value and being really close to the customer and building the kind of company that can continually see needs solve needs and do that in a really rapid way over and over is a tremendously valuable thing. Um, and so for us, you know, I don't really think of us as, as an application layer business. Obviously, that's kind of where we, where we fit right now, but we're really you know, in the business of solving whatever problems our customers have. And sometimes that might mean that we'll uh, dip down into model layer and um, kind of across the stack if that's what it means. But uh, I certainly think, like you said too, Phil, there's like so much value everywhere that there's probably a lot of great companies to build here. Yep, absolutely. Um, Chris, I'm curious here. You mentioned that you, you started Runway four or five years ago, long before the current generative AI boom. Um, and all three of you have been, have been working in the space for a long time. Um, what, is, what is a trend or a theme in the world of AI that you're excited about for the next three to five years that maybe everyone is not really excited about and talking about now, but you think will be super relevant and important going forward? I think a lot of people tend to think about models and research in a zero-sum kind of like uh, way where like the models do everything or they don't do nothing at all. I think a lot of the value will, that will come from control and expression and making sure the models are robust and aligned to what you're trying to do and work in the way. So a lot of the work that I think what we're doing and, and some other folks are also doing is making sure that the models are manageable and expressible and controllable in the ways that users or, uh, or your intention tries to, to do it. Um, and I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of it doesn't come from making larger models or better models. It's just like the iteration component of UAX or UI sometimes. Um, and iterating on how that gets deployed uh, requires a lot of tinkering. Um, I think toys really matter. Sometimes a toy gets dismissed as a toy because it might not look like something right now, but there's a lot of learning in that toy. And so um, uh, a, a lot of, I think I agree with what we just said, but a lot of what needs to be built is still like ahead of us. And that requires constant like learning and building. Um, and so again, going back to, I guess, to the first question, but like we're still very early and there's a lot yet to uncover. Um, and so it's more of a of a mentality and a muscle to have and to cultivate to really and truly understand everything that can be unpacked from from this. Yep, yep. Kind of to that point around how early we are in the in the mega cycle. I'm curious to hear um, your all's thoughts on how much actual adoption of kind of next generation generative AI technology you're seeing within enterprises like 
Fortune 500 Main Street type companies and what the key blockers are that you think need to be resolved or need to be addressed before the floodgates can more fully open up. And Dave, maybe let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to sell to larger companies for you know two years now, and a lot of the early adopters were all individuals and prosumers and consumers using it, and um, larger companies were would not feel safe kind of bringing this in house and using it. And what if it says something that we don't agree with? You know, like it was not a safe thing. And even just in the last six months, we've seen that like totally change. Where you know you might have gotten fired six months ago for using this in the company, and now you're going to get fired if you don't. And like this, the whole mindset around it has shifted where everyone's trying to figure out how do we, how do we do this? You know, how do we bring this in? How do we use it on our teams? How do we use it on our marketing teams? Uh, we've got to keep up. I think things that, that we're hearing a lot that people care about obviously is, you know, these models hallucinate and they say things that are just not true. And in some industries or use cases, that's okay. You know, writing a blog post about your lawn mowing business, you know, it's probably okay if, like, you accidentally said the wrong type of grass. But if it's medical diagnoses, like, that's obviously not okay. And so I think you're seeing people kind of weigh the the costs and trade-offs of that. Like, is it, how do we fact-check it? How do we make sure that it's saying what we want to say? Um, and then how comfortable are we with some of those, um, you know, kind of uh, untrue statements that come out? Uh, I think, like I said, too, what they're wanting is they want um, it built and, and to speak like them and to talk like them and to know what the knowledge base of the company is uh, in order to like really roll this out. Uh, and I think security, you know, people have their own proprietary data and they, they want to keep that and they see that as an asset in the company and I think it is and, and they don't want to um, let everybody else, you know, kind of use their own, use their data and so they're really curious, you know, hey, is there a way to kind of firewall this away from everything else and to maybe keep it on premise and, um, you know, lock that data down and, and there's, there's ways to do that. But that's certainly some of the concerns that we're hearing. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned hallucinations, so I want, I want to pick up on that. And, and for folks in the audience that, that aren't familiar, the term basically just refers to language models' tendency to sometimes produce content that is false or made up or nonsensical, um, and it, it, it's a uh, persistently difficult problem to solve uh, with these language models. Phil, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this because I, I think this is a really interesting question that no one, no one really knows the answer to, but maybe isn't getting enough discussion yet, which is this challenge of, of hallucination for large language models. Is it something that you think we will uh, collectively will be able to address through incremental tweaks uh, and adjustments to the models as we're building them today? Or do you think it's possible that a more fundamental architectural or paradigm shift will be necessary in order to build models that have true, persistent common sense and, and true understanding of the world? Um, yeah, it's a great question, and, and I think there are sort of two parts. What we have today, um, we can do a lot more with. That's that's true, um, but it's, it, at the same time, we haven't solved AI in any sense. Um, the the sort of um, um, what we're doing in industry has has uh, lagged research quite significantly. So research has run ahead um, quite a way in terms of uh, what has been done compared to what has actually been deployed, um, and that I mean, that's partly why. Um, what is it now, about a year, year or more ago, there was actually quite a big exodus from a lot of these research uh, labs, um, like DeepMind, where I was, and, and Google Brain and others, because people are quite excited about the things they'd done in research but weren't being deployed. Um, so there's a lot of research out there to address these. So we know that there's a good pipeline of things we can do to, to improve, and you're seeing some of those. You're seeing a lot of action in what's called retrieval augmented generation, and that's what you're seeing in the, the web search engines, but there's lots of other applications for that. There's an interface design 
part to this. So it's not just um, so if we can we can uh, condition models on things we can retrieve, like results from the web. But then we can also have the model site uh, where its sources are to attribute things. Um, and so you, you as a user can check and, and see if you if you trust. So there's those aspects, and we can bring a sort of a general model, the model you might get if you first come to our API, up to a certain level. Um, then if you have a particular application where you're much more sensitive to the, the quality, we can say, well, there's specific things we can do for that use case to, to get, make it better. Um, and the gap between whatever performance you get from the API and sort of 100%, you can think of that as this basically sort of an exponential effort curve. You'll never get to 100% but you can keep pushing it more and more depending on how much effort, and that'll cost in terms of, of money. Um, but there, there are those dimensions that we can push. So for a lot of use cases, um, I think what we have today uh, will be enough with the right, the right interfaces, the right deployment, um, and also training users to understand how to use these things and then what to trust and what not to trust. Um, there are use cases that are still beyond us, and I'd still caution anyone from deploying these models in safety-critical situations. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I do just want to underscore again the point that you made that the, the state of the art in, in the world of research is far ahead of what's been deployed commercially. So what, what folks are seeing, even with chat GPT and so forth, there are much, there's much more powerful technology that's already been developed, which I think is, is exciting. Uh, exciting and a little scary for the world. Um, one question I'm, I'm curious to hear all three of your thoughts on, and Chris, we can, we can start with you, is um, there's obviously, as we've talked about, a tremendous amount of interest and buzz around generative AI, um, a ton of capital flowing into the space, a ton of interest. Um, but also I would say, I think it's fair to say that the signal-to-noise ratio in the world of AI has deteriorated over the past several months. There are a lot of, you know, folks that you might think of as tourists on the investing side, on the founding side, et cetera, flooding into the category. Um, do you worry that we, that we may be entering some version of a bubble in AI? And uh, is that something you're concerned about? Not really. I think the companies that will like succeed are the companies that know how to build either research product or both. Uh, and I think what, what's, what's great is a lot, a lot of people are finally paying attention to like the space and, and how transformative models and multimodalities will be and how useful they're going to be. I remember showing um, like a large ad agency in New York four years ago an earlier version of a text-to-image model, and it was just really hard for everyone to understand the idea that you can generate images via language. Um, it was really, really hard to understand the idea that these images are not coming from a database or not being collaged or like just like being generated on, on, on real time. And I think we've we've improved a lot our like research models, but also collectively we've improved a lot our mental models around the technology, and that helps drive more interest into the space because more people are interested in building finally um, like useful things. Um, and a lot of the value will. Become will come still from the from the folks who understand how useful these models are. I think one common, I guess, misconception is to think about a model as a product, and that's perhaps what I see a lot of people get confused. They see like a cool demo or a cool research, and I think it's important to understand that research is not product, and like a demo is not business. Um, but if you keep that in mind, I think there it's just great that more minds are kind of like thinking about the hard problems of the space at yep. the same time. Yeah. What would you say, Phil? Um, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely froth, and there's there's um, 
sort of uh, high quality companies and, and lower quality. Um, but I wouldn't wouldn't call it a bubble because I think there's just uh, demonstrable value there. We're seeing this. I mean, right at the top, you've got um, uh, Google and Bing sort of fighting it out over big language models in search, uh, and that obviously involves a huge amount of potential revenue, either loss possibly on the Google side or gain. Um, uh, and uh, just for, for Cohere, partly where, where Cohere came from, for the founders, Aidan, uh, Nick and Ivan, um, and also people like me who had worked in these big tech companies, um, seen the research, the, these models are already driving huge value within these companies, within Google, within Facebook. Uh, transformers, other models that uh, just permeate everything that's being done. Um, but they haven't reached outside of those companies. It's, it's very difficult for the average developer to get the same effect that, that a developer within one of these big tech companies can, can get. So I think that the value's demonstrated uh, and it's there. It's a question of, again, how to go from uh, yeah, the models, the, the, the research ideas into to products, um, what are actually the, the what's, where's the product market fit, what are the actual sort of killer um, uh, applications and ways of packaging these models up. Yep. Dave, what do you think? Is the AI space too overheated? I, w I wish there were less copywriting tools popping up. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I don't think so. And, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, even like my day today. I, I answered some emails on the plane, you know, with Jasper. But, like, outside of that, like, I didn't, I didn't I'm not using this everywhere I go. And if you, if you log off Twitter, you know, like, you're not going to just be bumping into it. It's not going to be in a lot of the products that you're using. My parents are not, you know, using generative AI. And yet we see that it is really, really valuable. So there's a lot there. You know, you said the developers, you know, aren't kind of touching the value yet. And then even they're not building it for like regular people out there. And so I think it is a rare situation where like it, it's truly valuable. Um, there's all this money that has flowed in recently, a lot of really great people. Uh, are flowing into it. I think, yeah, people are going to realize it is harder to build a real business. You know, it's easy to get a lot of retweets and have a really cool curated demo, but like to get something out there into the world is much harder. Um, but no, I think I think it's going to be a really exciting few years where we see that um, again. It's kind of like it's kind of what Web three promised to be. We're just going to see this like really impact lives and, and really um, be a really beneficial thing for society. Yep. Yep. Um, Chris, I'm curious, especially given that the, the product that you all have built at Runway is, is meant to put these really powerful AI tools into as many, as many people's hands as possible. What advice would you have for folks in the audience uh, who have heard about generative AI, have maybe played around with ChatGPT, um, are excited about the potential of the technology, and want to further explore either for their, their company uh, or for themselves personally, uh, you know, what, what, how they might be able to use the technology uh, and add value in their lives. What what kind of what steps would you suggest to get started? Uh, I'm really looking for it. We're at a time where we're we're collectively going to refer to like these products are just products and not AI products. In the same way that we don't refer to companies as internet companies, it's just like everyone uses the internet nowadays. Uh, and so the 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 way I would like to think about it is like just think about it as a fundamental piece of technology that will embed it in everything you do. It doesn't matter if you're a filmmaker or a journalist or a lawyer, it will be like a fundamental layer and an assistant and an enhancement and an augmentation to your existing workflows. You may become more productive, you're going to become, from the storytelling perspective, which is where we work with, um, much more able to execute ideas faster and better at a fraction of the cost. I think embracing that this is something different. It's not, it's not 
I think sometimes we try to hold these models to impossible standards uh, to compare them to things we've used in the past. But the thing is, this is just new. It's totally new. It, it's, it needs to be, and that's why we go back to what I said before. It requires a tinkering and exploration uh, to discover, and it's new like affordances. And I think that mentality of like exploring and discovering is just fundamental uh, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be everywhere. Yep. Phil, what would you say to that, to fo folks who have heard about the technology and, and are wondering how, how it can best impact their company? Um, well, the first thing is to, to play with it. There's, there, there are these great APIs out there um, uh, that you can just start playing with the models. Uh, that's um, a great thing to do because, one, you can see the, the, the promise that they, they can do, but you also pretty quickly understand the rough edges and the limitations. You understand that it's, it's not magic. Um, there, are, there are ways of, of uh, using these tools that give a good result and others that don't. Um, the other thing I'd say for anyone sort of thinking about this in their business context is thinking about traditional AI, you sort of have to reverse your notion. So traditional AI really focused on high precision and low, low recall, low coverage. So we could do a few things really accurately and a lot of stuff it just wouldn't do. Uh, the models we're building now are very broad coverage. They'll try and do everything... Like chat GPT will always give you an answer whether it knows the answer or not, um, but the precision is is low. So in terms of use cases, you have to think about, well, where where does that fit? Where am I willing to have uh, lower precision um, but broad coverage uh, and, and robustness, uh, which is very important for interacting with people because people always want uh, an answer. They don't want the system to, to break and refuse to, to answer. So having that, that mindset... Uh, which does sort of reverse where you think about where to put these things. So definitely anything involving sort of recommendation where there's not necessarily a right answer, where there's um, where the model is essentially helping you and creativity and all these sorts of things. That's where a lot of the, the strength for these models is. Yep, yep. We have just about one minute left. So last question. I'm curious to hear the brief thoughts from each of the three of you. Dave, we'll start with you. What, and th this can be from your company or, or otherwise, what is one specific concrete use case or application of generative AI that maybe is not widely known or appreciated that you are really excited about that's adding value in, in the world? I think generative AI doing more stuff for you is, is happening some now, but also kind of right around the corner. Instead of just you know generating text or an image or a video, you'll be able to you know have it go and check your email and summarize all of it and send you a one email back with kind of all that summarized. Or be able to like chain different products together and, and just like navigate the world with a simple interface where it's actually doing more, not just writing or generating images. Yep. Cool. Yeah, in a, in a similar sort of way, I think that, um, particularly for language, becoming the glue that glues a lot of things together. But the way we think of sort of what we're developing at Cohere in the end is um, the ability to allow these models to act in the world. So they, so not just sort of have a discussion, but the model can interact with APIs, it can interact with uh, web pages, fill in web forms, it can uh, visualise data for you that's been retrieved. Uh, and all these sorts of things. Again, this is something that uh, uh, most of these things have shown up in the research work. They've been demonstrated, and now the challenge is to bring them uh, into sort of commercial applications. Absolutely. Chris? Um, I think storytelling uh, and the way we tell stories, uh, the way we make movies and filmmaking, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be forever changed, and so really excited to be part of that, that change. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Amazing conversation. Super excited what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.